Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. We have got a very fun guest, Heather Yen. Heather is the founder of Nonprofit Ist. That's nonprofit.ist, to be clear. And Heather's also a consultant at Third Space Studio. Heather, thanks for joining us. How is it going? Great. I'm glad to be joining you today. Well, you know, I came across Nonprofit Ist, but I've also been watching your work for a while. And I, I laughed because it was similar to a tool that whole whale has tried to build and kind of does on the side, but maybe we can just start with what is a nonprofit ist? Good question. So I think of a nonprofitist like a florist or a dentist. So a nonprofitist is a person who has experience with nonprofits. So nonprofitist is also a website, a directory of nonprofit experts. So coaches, consultants, lawyers, accountants, anybody who can help nonprofits with the challenges they're, they're dealing with. So we've got almost 300 folks from across the country as part of our directory and leaders, nonprofit leaders from all over the country can come and find the help that they need there. And how is a nonprofitist uniquely different than somebody who is working for a for-profit industry? Like, you know, I work on email. Why is the nonprofit is, ist? so important in this equation? I think it's really important because nonprofits have a, to some degree, unique set of challenges. We're often resource constrained. We're dealing with different kinds of social issues or behavior change or advocacy that maybe those in the business world might not be. And the nonprofit leadership structure often is really different than um, what you might have in a for-profit business. So if you're working in a nonprofit, you might have to be dealing with a board of directors that has a whole lot of influence and power over the decisions that are being made, potentially. And, and that often doesn't exist in the same way in the for-profit world. And so this site, nonprofit.ist, helps people find these professionals? Like, how is it mapped? It sounds like a marketplace. It is a marketplace. I, I designed it to be somewhat the Angie's list of nonprofit consultants. We do not have all of the features at Angie's list yet, but it is a place where you can come and sort people. You can search by any particular category. You can search by geography. You can look for keywords. So if you're looking for a strategic planning consultant in Florida who has experience with, you can put all of that in there. And the system will spit out, here's a few folks who might fit. The less specific you are, the more people you'll get. But we have, I think, a dozen different specialties now and about 40 states we've got represented. Interesting. What's the most popular IST somebody's looking for? The most popular IST that people are looking for tends to be fundraising. Unsurprisingly, fundraising continues to be the thing that people really need help with. And that's whether it's figuring out how to ask major donors for funding, setting up bequests, thinking about grant writing, all of those specialties we see a lot of interest in. So tools, sites, marketplaces like 
Fiverr have existed for quite some time or Upwork or mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank. Why did you decide to create one focused on nonprofits? I think what we saw in the, in the world, in the marketplace, was that there wasn't kind of trusted just for people who have experience with nonprofits. So certainly you could go on Fiverr, you go on Craigslist and find yourself a graphic designer. But if you need someone who really understands strategic planning, or if you want a lawyer who can help with incorporation, those folks are a little bit harder to find. And there is a very fragmented landscape of these directories. So some state nonprofit associations have kind of business directories. Some very specific kind of specialties have their own directories, but there was nothing that was really national. And that included all of the different kinds of help that nonprofits really. It sounds like a daunting task to try to corral so many independent contractors or small companies. How long have you been building this? How have you been going about adding to the database? So I think it was more daunting than I envisioned. If I had known at the start <laughs> how daunting it was, I might not have started. But I began in January of 2019. We got our first expert to be part of the directory. We had 100 folks by May of that year and opened up to the public. So it's really started getting nonprofit leaders to come and take a look. And we've been growing really by word of mouth. So there was a big question when we started, how are we going to credential the people in the directory? How are you going to know that you're getting somebody good? And that for nonprofit consultants is actually a really hard question. There is no one uh, certificate that we can get. There's no, no particular degree. If you're great in one specific area like fundraising, you might have a certification or coaching. But we went round and round about how we were going to credential people and eventually decided that trust is transitive. And so if I trust you as a consultant that you're going to do good work and you trust somebody else who I don't know, then that trust is transitive. So I am going to trust that they are also a good consultant. So we have grown by invitation only. So our members can invite their colleagues to become part of the network. Interesting. So it's if A equals B and B equals C, then A and C could get a drink sometime and hopefully be able to speak the same language. So how does, you know, you know, we have uh, a wide audience listening. How would a, you know, consultant who's saying, oh, I, I want to be on this list. How, how would they go about that then? Good question. So we do have folks who are not directly connected. There's a way to apply on the website and you just have to answer a couple of questions. One of the other things that I know about consulting is that one consultant isn't great for everybody. So we're not looking to say, here's a set of absolutely perfect A-plus consultants who are going to work for every person. We're looking to say, here's a set of folks who have some good experience with nonprofits, who have some trust with their colleagues. And if you're going to hire them, we want you to be a good consumer. We want you to think about how you're actually going to choose who to work with and make sure they're the right fit for you. Have you ever had to boot somebody for, for misbehaving? We haven't ever really had to boot anybody for misbehaving. <laughs> I'll tell you that story later. <laughs> I love I love the postscript on that. And <laughs> you know, it's it's a 
it's an important note though. You know, you, you mentioned sort of Angie's list and a part of that is ratings and trust, but at the, at the heart of it, you know, every organization can't be great at doing all of the things and some percentage of projects just don't go as planned because that's the nature of consulting. They've been hired to solve a hard problem and sometimes it doesn't get solved in the way that everyone hoped. So how do you go about that, I guess, as a, you know, promise to nonprofits? I assume nonprofits can come on there and post what they need or look for a professional. Like what does that type of vetting promise look like? So we promise that this is a trusted network. We allow people to, for nonprofit consultants, they can post their LinkedIn profile, they can post their email, they can put up testimonials about how great they are. And when nonprofit leaders, when a board member, executive director, development director comes to look, we really encourage them to think about how they're going to hire well. But nonprofitance as a website doesn't get involved in that transaction. We really wanted to make it as frictionless as possible and also free. So for all of our nonprofit leaders who are coming to the site, it's totally free to get in and get access to all of these consultants. And here's a tough one for you. What about ratings? I immediately think of, as you've mentioned, Angie's List or like a Yelp, I'm saying like, how many stars can I leave people potentially? I have been really hesitant to get into the ratings game. And that is... In part because I'm not sure in this case they'd be super helpful. I suspect that we would be getting a lot of five-star reviews and that just in this context, I think people are too nice. I'm not sure that we would actually get that kind of constructive feedback that would be helpful. And maybe that's just what I'm telling myself because I have heartburn about putting that up and having to deal with consultants who might want to take down negative reviews or kind of mediate any of those, because certainly there are times when I've been a consultant for 12 years, there are times when the work hasn't gone as expected and it's my fault. There are other times when the work hasn't gone as expected and it's actually the client's fault. And so there's just a lot of a, a gray area there that I'm, I'm hesitant to get into, but is, is definitely on our radar. I don't know the right answer. I have been in the same game for over a decade. And I'm aware that what happens on Yelp ultimately is the polars, right? You end mm -hmm. up with extremely happy or extremely frustrated and that can paint a weird picture and then put you know, a marketplace owner in a weird place. But clearly from a nonprofit perspective, you'd be curious as to sort of number served or something there. It's hard though. I started this conversation mentioning Whole Whale's got a similar product, which ate with a much, much, much smaller <laughs> band. We only look at sort of digital RFPs, website builds for, you know, we originally did this because we, we don't build websites at Whole Whale. And there's a, a lot of things we don't do at Whole Whale where we want and need a trusted network. You mentioned that sort of transitive <laughs> property of trust. And so it's like a handful. We have less than 20 companies that serve a, a range of budgets for these types of, of technical projects and includes like AdWords management mm. and website dev. The problem was, you know, the, well, many fold, but just sort of scaling beyond that trust. And like, we just, I didn't have the guts to open 
up the the door wider, but also we didn't have enough projects, I'd say, to come in. So the two-sided marketplace is super hard. We have a handful of these RFPs coming in. I'm curious on your side, what does that nonprofit flow look like? What is the you know average size? You mentioned it's a fundraising, <laughs> fundraising unsurprised type of consulting people are looking for, but maybe you can paint what that looks like. So we have been actively reaching out about the directory, marketing the directory, really putting a lot of our budget behind recruiting nonprofit leaders to come to the directory. As I said, it's free to join and you got to join if you really want to dig into somebody's profile. And we've got just over 3,000 members now over the past three years. So we're doing, we're finding that a lot of people are interested in this. The two big ways that folks are finding us, one is we invest a lot in Google ads. We have found that that has been a really good way for us to, to find new. And then also word of mouth. So every time somebody asks me, or asks any of the consultants in our directory, do you know somebody who, which we get those questions a lot, our answer is non-profitance. So that kind of constant referring back has been really helpful. Because we are not always in the middle of the RFPs, the best data that we have about what folks are looking for and what they're getting is from doing some surveys every year. And so we know that Folks are finding good people through nonprofitists. They're getting their projects done. They're recommending it to their friends. They have a pretty high level of satisfaction. And for our tool, we, you know, jokingly called it Snorkel. Our front door is an RFP generator. Like we don't let you come into the party unless you have an RFP. Now, those three letters, (laughs) the request for proposal, I know spark a bit of ire in the consulting space. Maybe you can map out your approach and experience with the RFP, do they, don't they dilemma. Yes. So I am anti-RFP, just to stake my claim. I think that absolutely organizations need to get clear about what they're looking for before they approach a consultant. But that is different than having an RFP. An RFP can help you get clarity on some of the questions. How much money do you have? When do you want this to be done? What are the big questions you're looking to answer? I have also seen RFPs that are 12 pages long and answer none of that, right? So they are not necessarily the same thing. I actually asked some consultants on LinkedIn. I put out a post about RFPs and got a lot of great feedback, most folks in a similar situation to me, that RFPs are just not what works. And and I think they don't work for a couple of reasons. One is often they're really prescriptive, and that prescription is either solving the wrong problem or putting together a scope of work that just really isn't going to address the need. And part of the reason why you want to work with a consultant often is to help diagnose the challenge, help plan out the solution. So if you're already doing that in your RFP, if you've already said, we're going to have one two-hour board training and one one one-hour work session with the executive committee, and that's it, that's the solution to our problem, then you're really not using consulting to its full capacity. You're not really using us in a way that's going to be helpful. They also often require a lot of free work. 
So I am half of a two-person consulting firm. We use our time to do the work. And so if you are asking us to put together a five-page RFP or five-page proposal with lots of responses, we may not ever apply for that. And that's certainly going to be true for other folks who are not part of larger organizations. So you're kind of skewing your RFPs towards people who have the capacity to sit down and write lots of proposals. And finally, they're really impersonal, I think. When the best fits come when you actually have that that personality, when you're able to talk to somebody and you click and you both understand the problem, you understand how you're going to work together, those work styles really mesh. And the RFP proposal process really doesn't do that well. I just had the best experience and I didn't even get the work, but it was still the best experience. I had somebody send me a request for conversation. It was a two-page document that included lots of the pieces of an RFP. And at the bottom, it says, if this seems like something you're interested in, click here to schedule a 25-minute phone conversation. So I did it. My partner and I got on the phone. We talked for 25 minutes. Fantastic conversation. And at the end of it, he said, okay, I'm going to be talking to our executive director. And if you move on, the next step is a conversation with the two. So that was 25 minutes of our time, 25 minutes of his time. It wasn't the right fit for whatever reason, but that was fine. I would do those calls all day long rather than write out those large proposals. I, I wish I could say that like, that's not perfect because the request for conversation, we sit, we get those like, uh, requests for information is also kind of goes by. And it's just so much more efficient. And I will say like, you know, we, we live in an RFP world for project sizes and pieces that just have to be part of the, the DNA of the process. You know, one of our approaches is putting out a template that hopefully elicits something usable and it kind of brings somebody through that process, but we don't respond to cold RFPs where we don't Mm -hmm. get a conversation first. And I think that's an important note. The other piece I'll say about the RFP is it, it does help focus sometimes I'd find the project as opposed to saying, you know, here's a problem. We have no clue what we need. And that's the difference of going to a dentist versus a general practitioner. Do you mm-hmm. dentist here? Like, let's be clear what the problem is. And so in, in that type of focus, we sort of, we default to the unfortunate RFP I'd say, but I want to pull back to the the size of organization that you somehow, you know, end up with. As soon as you kind of like pull together the RFP, you have to assume the type of machinery that can respond to Mm -hmm. RFP, put together those pages, right? We have a win rate of about anywhere hovering from like 46 to 52%, which means half of our work goes into ye ye old dumpster Mm -hmm. of, of hours. How do you think about the budget expectations? when it comes to these conversations? The budget expectations from in response to what the nonprofit is looking for? Yeah, that awkward conversation about how much does it cost? Well, how much do you have? (laughs) Yes. So I take my cues from Say Yes to the Dress. And so have you ever seen this (laughs) show? It is a, it is a, I don't know what channel is it, TLC probably. But it's about women shopping for wedding dresses. And so they walk into a store and there's wedding dresses from, you know, $1,000 to $100,000. 
And the bridal consultants, not saleswomen, consultants say, is there a price point we should pay attention to? Is there a price point we need to respect? Is there, is there a budget here? And so I lean on that kind of language. So is there a budget I need to keep in mind? Is there a budget you have set aside for this? I won't really respond to an RFP. I won't respond to an RFP if it doesn't have a budget in it. Particularly for the kind of work I do, if someone wants a strategic planning process, it really depends on what kind of investment they're looking to make as to what the scope of our work could be. And so oftentimes I will kind of walk folks through that. So here's a few different pieces of work we could do. If we did all of them, it's a $40,000 project. If we just did this one little piece, it's a $10,000 project. But I need to understand where you are. And so certainly there's budget implications for that. The thing I think we don't often uh, think enough about, especially in the kinds of organizational development projects, is what's the bandwidth that the board and the staff have for this? So if you're doing a strategic plan or board development or even in-depth fundraising, what else does, does the staff and board have on their mind this year? Are you also going through uh, a diversity, equity, inclusion project? Are you also celebrating your 40th anniversary? Are you also launching a capital campaign? Do you actually have the bandwidth to do this project this year? Or does that help to determine the size of the project as well? So it's a monetary and a time type of budget. Yes. It's, uh, what resources do you have available for this in the coming year or two years? It's super important and tough too, because, you know, we've seen a lot of folks, well, I don't want to put a budget on this, but I'm going to give you a five page RFP. And you know, I just sort of, I'm like, I, I won't pass that forward because, you know, we've got companies on our snorkel list that will do a project for $5,000 and $500,000. Mm-hmm. So for you to not give a budget, you're like, okay, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you what happens on the other side. They're like, yeah, we're, we're not going to bother with this. Or what they do is they look at your 990 and then they analyze what's going on with the size of the organization and they back into it. But this could be a small project. You're just sort of wasting your own time mm-hmm. and others' time by not having that budget range. However, I do see the converse there where... Maybe you're talking about a larger, you know, fundraising effort or a larger project where there could be a range and you want competitive bids because, again, a nonprofit is obliged by its, you know, statute to have three competitive bids. And if you say, I'm going to spend, you know, $60,000 on this project, then you're like, how much competition you get? So what is your advice for, for that nuanced game? So not all nonprofits need to get the competitive bids, but many do. Threshold Um, on that? Do you know? I think it might have to do with the funding source. So it might be like government money. You have to get more bids. A lot of the nonprofits I work with don't have to get those bids if they're smaller and they don't have government funding. I think, though, that when we're talking about reacting based on price, choosing based on price, you are not going to get the best consultant for you. So if your only way of judging is price and you're not looking at that fit, you're not looking at experience, you're not looking at work to be done, then I think you're really 
you're, you're doing yourself a disservice and your organization a disservice. So I react well when someone says, well, we've got kind of 50 to $60,000. That's our budget range. And here's all the things we want to do. What I see often happens is nonprofit leaders' eyes are bigger than their plates. Their desires are bigger than their. So I might describe all the things we could do. And then I find out they've only got a very small budget, but they're still trying to cram all of the different pieces in um, and figuring out how to get the most bang for their buck, which I do think makes sense. But if someone doesn't have a budget, huge red flag for me. They're not taking this seriously. They're not ready to make a, a significant investment of time and money. If they won't share their budget, I think I try to walk them through Here's why it matters to me what your budget is, not because I'm going to max it out, but because I want to right size the work. And if they still won't give me a budget, then I think that's a, that's a big question for myself and my colleague, my partner to figure out, do we really want to move forward with it? Yeah. I think the selection criteria is kind of interesting because if you just choose based on price, the adage of you get what you pay for is like mm -hmm. an immutable law of gravity that comes forward. And at that point, you know, you should just go on to Fiverr and have somebody just, you know, go do oh. it for $5. You realize there's a point at which that's a ridiculous thing. And you're playing a weird game by going about that. Coming back to that question though, you know, you have nonprofits wading into 300, 3000 X, you know, options out there. How does the site or do you advise on choosing that right, we'll say, fundraising consultant? So our advice is to first be clear about what you need. So what's the challenge you're trying to address? How much do you have to put into it, both in terms of money and in terms of time? When do you want it done? Honestly, the when can be really challenging. So if you have a board retreat next weekend, your pool of consultants is very small, right? If you, if we have some time and some bandwidth, you have a much bigger pool of consultants. The other thing I encourage folks to think about is what are those kind of untangible, intangible, unteachable things that you are really looking for in a consultant? So it might be you're really looking for a particular kind of experience. It might be you are looking for a particular kind of personality. So you might like someone who is super direct. You might like somebody who is really focused on project and task management. You might know that because of the composition of your board and staff, you really want to be sure that the, the team includes a person of color in the leadership, right? There are a whole lot of characteristics that if you reflect back both on yourself the organization, the team that's leading this work, you might identify there's some specific things that we're really looking for. And I think those can be really important. Yeah. So there's some intangibles that like your style approach, other, other factors, and then, you know, you have the conversations. It seems like the large part of this platform is you go on, here are folks that fit your filter. Now go have some conversations while also sending some of that information up front as a maybe request for conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's maybe instead of Angie's List, I should call it match.com, although I don't actually know much about match anymore, but it's to get you to the date, right? Like there's information here, there's background about consultants, experience, but it's really to get you to that conversation to see if there's a match. 
to see if you fit in terms of experience, if you see, if you like the questions the consultant is asking you, if they have good questions, answers to the questions you're asking them. It's really about that interaction. What's the, you mentioned time, what's the recommended amount of time to sort of buffer in? Like I have a project that needs, I know it needs to start at the end of the year. And here's the funny thing that you and I see every fundraising cycle is I need this to start ASAP, which is just the hilarious four letters that we all see. Mm-hmm. What is the recommended amount of time? Let's just play with this game of like, you know that you're going to need a project in Q4. When should you start looking for that consultant? It's going to depend on how booked out the consultant is, but I will say at least three months in advance. You want to have have the person in mind be signing the contract three months in advance. That way, if you're having an in-person board retreat or you're launching a fundraising campaign, you've got time to do the pre-work. So that might mean that you need to start searching four months, five months, depending on what kind of process you want to do to actually select the person. But three months out is for me and for the, the consultants that I know gives a good bit of flexibility. What do you think? I think the shorter your time to start, the more you're going to end up having to pay for a larger firm that has that type of excess capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, what we have seen over time. For example, we're not taking on clients until July right now. And that date is rapidly moving away. And, you know, the the game is that the smaller the shop, the less they can afford the availability, meaning that, can I just take on another project right now? No, because I book up my months so that I don't have an idle, you know, an idle hour, which is tough because, you know, you miss out on projects and pieces that, that happen, but you can't uh, operate like what we'd say high, uh, a low utilization tool, like a fire department where it is fine because we want them to available and be available when the fire happens. Mm-hmm. You just, I think, end up with just massive agencies that can just cost more and maybe get less personalized. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we're a company of 26 people, but when I started, it was a company of me. So I've kind of seen this like grow over time and this game of keeping the plate full while keeping the opportunity to work with great organizations coming in. And it, you know, it always frustrates me when a great organization comes in and like, hey, we, we've known about this project for <laughs> six months, but we're calling you right now. And you're like, why? didn't yet message us and ah, we were going to get to it. It just my favorite is I put you in a grant request that we, we were going to do this work with you next year. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> and why are you telling me on December 15th? Like we need to have started. No, but you're in the grant. I, I wrote yeah. you in and you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, you know, about that size. And I guess, would you know the average size of project? It seems like if these are consultants operating at like less than five people, over under five people, it sounds like that's kind of where the nonprofitist hovers. Yeah. Nonprofitist consultants, a lot of folks are solopreneurs. We have a lot of small shops. My best guess is that our average projects, our projects are somewhere between kind of 5,000 and 20,000 with, of course, some variability on, on either side. A lot of the folks that we work with a lot of the nonprofits are coming and looking for some startup help. 
they're looking for running their first fundraising campaign, doing their first strategic plan. So sometimes those tend to be on the lower budget size. But we certainly have folks who are looking to do, you know, a statewide communications campaign and need some help. Yeah, I think that's such a valuable service because I know of so many like solopreneurs and, and small shops out there that do great work. But, you know, it's tough to find them, sort them out. And, you know, these are folks that may come and go out of the career, right? They're doing it between large organ like large organization work. Mm-hmm. And they'll show up for a while and like, wow, this is great. But, you know, it, it's tough to find that window sometimes. And it seems like a, a super valuable network for, for folks looking for those services. All right. Before we go into a rapid fire, I'm just curious, any other final advice for nonprofits that, you know, you want to talk about? You know, we touched on the choosing the intangibles, time and budget, the request for conversation preferred over request for proposal, any other like you know, insider tips for people looking to find a consultant on nonprofit. Last thought is that it's probably going to take more money, more time, more energy than you think it will, which is probably true for every consulting gig ever and every house renovation and everything else you do. But as you're really putting together your budget, as you're thinking about the time span for the work, just know that Unless you have a lot of experience with consultants, you probably are underestimating. And so just go in with a little bit of a flexible mentality about all of those variables. Yeah, it's like the Murphy's Law of home renovation. As much time as you have allocated for this, it's going to take more time, even after accounting for Murphy's Law. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Rapid fire, please. Try to keep your responses shortish. And here we go. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? I am in love with Zapier, which connects all kinds of programs. So you can connect your Gmail to your Zoom to your MailChimp. And it kind of, it does zaps back and forth between things. And I love it. What tech issues are you dealing with right now? I just launched a big survey on SurveyMonkey and the bots found it. And so we finally figured out how to put a question that was, we want to make sure you're human. Tell us about your favorite meal and why. And that is the, the bots figured out how to answer the multiple choice question about which one of these is not an animal. We thought that was going to work. It did not. They all knew it was a basketball, but this one seems to work. So bots in my survey. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? We are about to, for nonprofitists, launch our, what we're calling our ethos, which is our kind of statement of principles for the consultant community. We're just about done with designing it and we're going to launch it in the next couple of weeks. So I'm really excited to get that out there and, and hear what people have to say. Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today? Yes. So uh, when I was It's probably 15 years ago. I was working with, in my volunteer gig, I run a giving circle at that time in Raleigh called the Beehive Collective. And we were given this wonderful opportunity to host some events at a club in downtown Raleigh over the weekend. And so we were able to host an event on Friday night. We had this like great, crazy talent show on Saturday. We had a clothes swap. Used to do that a lot. And then on Sunday night, we had this thing called the barrister's ball, just a dance party. Well, nobody showed up to the third event. And 
what I really figured out is how oversaturating or overtaxing this community that we had, people wanted to show up for us. It was just too much. They could not do a Friday night, a Saturday day, a Saturday night. And so they made choices. And so as I think about engaging any kind of community, I really think about kind of what's the what's the cost of this? What's the trade-off of this? How do I really figure out what the carry capacity is of my community or of this organization or whatever? And, and how do I design for that? If I were to toss you in a hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work, what advice would you give? The advice of take more risk, try out more new things. Every time I have taken a risk, I have been rewarded for it. And I have really learned a lot and had a great time, made progress on my goals, but have often found myself hesitant, especially early in my career to do that. What is something you think you should stop doing? Saying yes. Saying yes to all kinds of things, work and otherwise. I already give you a magic wand to wave across the industry. It would stop executive directors from having unrealistic expectations about their boards and boards from having unrealistic expectations of their executive director. How did you get your start in the social impact sector? When I was in college, I joined an environmental group, the Student Environmental Action Coalition, and from there just kept going and going and going. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't follow? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't prepare for that one. All right, final one. How do people find you? How do people help you? So you can find me at nonprofit.ist, nonprofitist. You can reach me at heather at nonprofit.ist. And I would love it if you're a nonprofit leader and you want to join Nonprofitist and poke around and find some folks who can help you. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. We got a really active LinkedIn page. And then if you're a consultant and you want to find out more about joining the network, please be in touch. I would love to talk to you about it. Well, thank you for your work and for creating such an amazing tool and resource for the nonprofit community. Good luck. and Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 